You told me a long time ago that you have seen the original 1979 Mad Max, which I have. blew me away, actually. You, know, you also I'm have seen. Surprises. You've also seen, of course, uh, Fury Road, a movie yes. that I hold in very high regard as well. Agreed. Um, and did you see Thunderdome? I have not seen Thunderdome. Well, that's not the movie we're going to watch. We're what? Gonna, we're watching The Road Warrior from 1982. This is what it has come to. Here is where it shall be decided. There it is. Greetings from the Humongous. In a world without gas. The Humongous rules the wasteland. I'm gravely disappointed that you wish to take the gasoline out of the wasteland. Defend the fuel. We'll never walk away! Give me the pump, the gasoline. The whole compound. This is a land that prays for a hero. Well, if anyone's gonna get in there, it's gonna be you. This is Mad Max 2. Hello, welcome back to King Have You Seen? My name is Kyle. I'm Kari. And today we've got a uh, a movie that is very near and dear to my heart, and one of my favorite sequels, I would say. Mm. Uh, We are talking about the 1981 Australian landmark action thriller, uh, The Road Warrior, a.k.a. Mad Max 2. Now, as per usual, uh, I will let Kari do the honors of explaining how this movie goes down, what happens here, since this was your first time watching it. Yes, so uh, Mad Max, after losing his family in the... Uh, end of the first movie is now kind of just a lone wolf just trying to survive out there in the Australian outback Um, and he comes across basically this colony of um, it's a refinery but they're kind of living as this commune um, and he just goes saves one of their own to try to get basically in on this gas because of course Mad Max is all about gas shortage causing the apocalypse And he ends up doing a job for them and kind of trying to just get out and live his lone wolf ways. But of course he gets sucked in and ends up caring about them and this little feral kid, literally, um, and goes on a journey to um, basically save these people from the the gang of bad guys. Not the same gang of bad guys as the first one. Save the good guys from the bad guys. Exactly. Yeah. But don't get caught up with your heart because he's still a loner. Doesn't want to be tied down. Don't catch feelings, yeah. Don't catch feelings. Um, yeah, that's uh, pretty much the long and short of it. Um, now, the official synopsis, or at least this is a good one from IMDb, in the post-apocalyptic Australian wasteland, a cynical drifter agrees to help a small, gasoline-rich community escape a band of bandits. Um, so, yeah, pretty much pretty much nailed it. Yeah. Um, now... I'm going to ask you what you thought of this movie, but I'm cheating a little bit by guessing because I know that you liked at least Fury Road, the most recent mm-hmm. Mad Max movie. So I'm going to guess... Who didn't like Who Fury didn't like Road. it? I'm going to guess that you really liked this movie. I did. I really enjoyed this movie. Um, I don't remember the first one that well, okay. quite honestly. Uh, I remember the pinnacle scene of his family getting run down. That's basically it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't tell you what that movie was about. Um, so I guess I like this one better than that one. Not nearly as much as I liked Fury Road. Okay. But this one, it was good. It was 
campy. I'm sure we'll talk about that. It was 80s. It was Australian. All of those things are just like so ingrained in its DNA. Mm -hmm. It's hard not to like it. It's true. Um, Yeah. uh, So my own background in it, like I didn't, the the post-apocalyptic subgenre of science fiction is Mm. something that I've kind of developed an interest in. Okay. Um, What other ones have you... Uh, definitely, I mean, as we'll discuss here for sure, like, the Mad Max series is kind of, like, the pinnacle of that subgenre, I think. Mm -hmm. I used to be, when I was in high school, my friends and I got really into, like, zombie movies for some reason. I don't know why, like, Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Um, and then, kind of branching out of that is when I started to look into more of these semi-realistic apocalyptic movies, Mm -hmm. like, things that could potentially happen, I mm-hmm. guess, the way it could kind of go down. Um, and bar none, the Mad Max series is the best of the bunch. Like, there's really nothing that even comes close. You get a lot of really kind of shocky things, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of them kind of skirt between Apocalypse and just, like, a dystopian future, sort of like the uh, Hunger Games or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not really sure what it was that drew me to this. It was just kind of... I, I like Westerns a lot, and this mm-hmm. movie has a lot in common with classic Western formulas. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, yeah. And so it's it's kind of like merging different themes together that I find really interesting. Um, plus, I mean, rock solid action movies yeah. uh, all around. Um, I would personally think I love Fury Road and I love this one. I do personally think that the first Mad Max is my favorite. I don't okay. think it's the best. I think it's my personal favorite to watch, mm-hmm. which I'll, I'll go into more detail about why. Um, and I just have to share this one story about how. Um, the most memorable thing about this movie in terms of, like, my personal history doesn't really have anything to do with a major life-changing event or anything like that, mm-hmm. but one time when I was building costumes for Dragon Con, uh-huh. I was watching this movie at the same time, and I wasn't paying attention to what I was doing, and I cut my thumb open with a box cutter <gasps> oh really deep. God. I ended up getting six stitches in the emergency room. Oh, my God. Yeah, blood went everywhere. It was disgusting. But I remember thinking, while I was treating myself before I went to the emergency room, I was like, okay... This was bad enough, and I'm watching a movie about literally the end of the world. Oh. I, it tells me a lot about what my how I would respond to the things that are day to day occurrences oh, in this post apocalyptic wasteland. When I cut my thumb, and I thought it was the worst thing that ever happened to me. Six so. stitches. Yeah. You know what's funny? I've also cut my thumb with a box cutter, <laughs> opening a box of DVDs. Oh wow! Weird. That's... So much in common. Still got a little dent in there. Yeah, you can still see my stitches. That's crazy, though. So that was Mad Max 1, though? No, that was this one. That this was, was this, this one? Is, this okay. Is, uh, so do Warrior. you, like, have some, like, uh, like watching this? This is the like, first time like, I watched it since that happened, and so I was concerned oh. that was going to happen. I don't remember what part it was, because it just, like, the movie just went out the window as soon as I... Sure. As soon as that happened. I was like, oh, there's blood everywhere. Yeah, it looked like a murder scene in my oh, apartment. Oh, God. But anyway... It's, it's like when you watch a movie when you're sick. Like, if you stay home from oh, school yeah. and you watch a movie over and over again. This has happened to me. I don't know if this is universal, but, like, you kind of can't watch that movie anymore because it makes you feel a little sick. Actually, yeah. Under, I know yeah. exactly what you mean. For yeah. sure. So, I don't know if that's maybe, like, you're like, oh, God, my Yeah, I, I thought I was going to have, like, non-flashbacks from watching <laughs> yeah. a movie. Phantom limbs. Like yeah, that. right. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, when do you watch this movie now? Uh, I watch this movie pretty frequently. I mean, that was yeah. a couple of years ago, but, like, mm-hmm. before then, I had watched... I used to watch it pretty frequently, like... This is one that I can kind of turn on, and I'm, this, if you know me personally, this is very antithetical to my personality, but mm-hmm. this is the type of movie that I can just turn on and have it kind of in the background, only because I've seen it so many times, and I will, like, pay attention to it, but I kind of turn away at certain points when the exposition comes out and things like that, mm-hmm. and just tune back in when there's, like, an action sequence, um, so... 
I like to have this movie on just like I it's it's an aesthetic touchstone I feel like in a lot mm-hmm. of ways and so in that case it makes really good it's the kind of movie you can turn on at a party and just like not have the sound on like play music and just play the movie yeah and yeah. people won't complain about it I feel like a lot of car movies are like that like you can kind of just that. play maybe that's because a lot of car movies are also action movies but yep. like you can just see kind of there's sure. there's a lot to see without necessarily needing to hear everything definitely which I will say is good because I had to turn on subtitles like two minutes into this movie. I couldn't understand a damn word they were saying. And then once I did, I realized they were like the closed captioning. Uh It got like everything. Like I couldn't even hear that people were speaking. And it was like in the background, like shoot, what's the bad guy's name? Humongous. Humongous. It's like humongous. Kill, go ride my like warrior boys. And And I was like, I can't even hear that there's a person. But yeah, there's a lot of Australian accent and mumbling. It's very difficult to understand. So, fun fact, the first Mad Max, funny you should mention this, the first Mad Max movie, when it was released in the United States, the studio that released it, subbed, or not subtitled it, uh, dubbed it with American actors because no. they didn't think people could understand the Australian accents. This must have been before Mel Gibson was anybody. Uh, no, yeah, this was like his, that was the movie that made him a superstar internationally. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but yes... Uh, Mel Gibson, who, by the way, is American, um, not Australian. He grew up in Australia, but he oh. but he is 100% American. Both of his parents oh. are American-born. Um, he I grew up in, yeah. He lived I, in New I York. Just very confusing. He lived in New York until he was 12 years old. Anyway. So, when he just speaks normally, no, I guess I haven't heard him speak in a while, but, like, is he, does he have a, he no, he doesn't, he doesn't have an Australian accent okay, anymore. Okay, no. all right. It's so funny watching this, because I was like, Wow. What a treasure. But, like, now it's like, ugh, Mel Gibson. Like, ugh. Yeah. This is before all that business. Yeah. I, I'm, okay, I'm okay with this. Um, but anyway, uh, reviews were pretty much universally positive from the very beginning. 98% fresh. 98% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Overwhelmingly positive across the board, like, pretty much from day one. Like, all the big names, like Vincent Canby, Roger Ebert, Pauline Kael, love this movie. They think it's mm-hmm. great. Um, that is kind of surprising for a campy movie. I yeah. feel like a lot of times campy does not read well with critics. It's just like, right. this is stupid. Exactly. But. Um, but in this case, it's like so well executed. And it's, it's kind of proved positive that like you can go kind of goofy in some ways as long as like you actually use it to good effect and make a solid movie, I feel yeah. like. Um, as far as like movies that might give you a sense of whether you like this movie, I honestly think if you liked Fury Road, mm. you should watch this movie. I mean, I think it makes a very solid companion piece to see like 35 years earlier. It's very similar in a lot of ways in terms of main plot devices and elements, things like that. Um, I don't totally, know what you think though, about that. It's totally, it feels totally different to yes. me. Which is interesting. Like it just almost, I mean, obviously the universe is so specific that obviously it's Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's part of the same universe, but the tone is just completely 180. Like, mm-hmm. this is, there's a lot of, obviously, we've said camp, but it it is just, like, so campy, not mm-hmm. necessarily in a funny, and I don't know if maybe part of it is just because, like, the way it reads, like, mm-hmm. as an 80s movie, there's some stuff that it's, like, you know, you can tell some of the snakes are rubber and some right, seeds, yeah. and there's certain things that just, we would do much glossier today, mm-hmm. so I don't know if that's just what it is, but... I don't know. I could see someone watching Fury Road and not enjoying this because they, you just get something different from each of them. Definitely. Although I'm curious about like how much impact that the you know the visuals specifically that were computer enhanced in Fury Road have to do with that difference in tone. Because one of the big things about Fury Road was that they talk so much about how everything was done practically, mm-hmm. but 
that sandstorm, for example, that was yeah. not an actual sandstorm. That was digitally in, in, inserted and things like right. that. The music is radically different. Mm-hmm. If they had used similar type of music in Fury Road, I wonder how that would have affected well, it. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, because c- by comparison, Road Warriors music is minimal. It's very spare, it seems like. I don't know. That one actually, I, I feel totally opposite. Okay, I, in the comparison music was, to, compared to Fury Road? Um, Fury Road was very intense. Yeah. Road Warrior was super pointed. I okay. felt like all of the music cues were so intentionally like supposed to make you feel a certain mm-hmm, way. There was mm-hmm. a lot of like, this is the bad guy. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh no, now it's sad. And like just a lot That's of things true. that, that it's like, true. boom. And it was too, it was too loud and too like, oh, this is a cue. Gotcha. I am now supposed to feel sad. I'm now supposed to feel scared or uh-huh. whatever. Gotcha. And whereas Fury Road is more just like that very mm-hmm. intense driving soundtrack throughout. And I feel like that was more, like, you're right, I agree with you about the music in Road Warrior. Um, and I feel like that was more a symptom of its day, you know, mm-hmm. in some cases. Like, no, that was just a convention. Mm-hmm. And that has changed a lot. Like, nowadays, I mean, 35 years from now, people look at Fury Road and be like, yeah, the music was just all like, just like, and like every other movie that came out since like 2007. But you have the guy playing the guitar and yes. the girls on top of the car. That's, That's true. You bring your arguments to me about it's that. Very that true. was Look, freaking cool. I agree. I have no argument about that. I'm just saying that will be a valid argument someone will make 35 years from now when they're snidely creating a podcast about Sorry, Mad Max Sorry, future 7. generations. You're wrong about that one. Your movies suck. Sorry. Um, our movies <laughs> rule. Your movies suck. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the other pairing that I was going to say was going to be probably like classic Western, like Stagecoach or something like that, which has a, ma- a very famous chase sequence that was influential mm. on this movie. So if you're more on the classic side and want to watch something older, Stagecoach, and want to watch something newer, Fury Road. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we get into kind of the meat of this conversation, I mean, one way to kind of look at this conversation, this discussion about Road Warrior is to kind of look at it as uh, being iconic mm-hmm. and uh, groundbreaking and yet very much classically rooted. Sure, um, yeah. One of the prime examples of the mono myth in in popular film, you know, the uh, hero's journey. Uh, think Star Wars. Uh, think Under the Tuscan Sun, if you recall. That's I cannot believe I just said that. Yeah, like, yeah we, we discussed that at length. We are changing time. the game here. Reframe your mind. Man, uh, think Diane Lane as Mad Max. I would watch that movie. Oh. I would watch that movie for sure. My God. Sorry, Tom Hardy, but I would watch a <laughs> Diane Lane, Charlize Theron, Mad Hell Max. yeah. All about it. All day. All about it. Let's feminize it. Come on, Hollywood. Sure, We're on this train. Sure. Keep it going. Um... And, uh, but yeah, as we, uh, moving right along here, let's see, we got, uh, our cast and crew, some of our, our key figures here, George Miller, the director, mm-hmm. um, he was the originator of the Mad Max character, very briefly, uh, he's a former ER doctor. What? So a lot of the stuff that has to do with, like, injuries and things like that in any of these movies are very detailed because he knows exactly what it looked like if, for example, a guy had a motorcycle run across his face. Oh or, you know, when you've got a car crash and there's, like, chunks of meat tumbling out. That would be something that, he, yeah. He's familiar. He's familiar. Uh, he's also directed, in addition to the Mad Max movies, such classics as Babe and Happy Feet. Wow. Yeah. He's a, He's amazing. How did... He just... Just wanted, I don't know. He had a lot oh, of. Oh, I'm different... a cute movie about a kid. Cute movie yeah. about a pig. I'm a no, cute movie about some penguins. <laughs> Those Australians. So um, strange. Yeah. Um, definitely he was inspired by um, Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces. As we discussed, that is the prime 20th century work about the idea of the monomyth. 
Um, also inspired by Carl Jung, the famous psychoanalyst, I believe, mm-hmm. and uh, greatly influenced by the films of Akira Kurosawa, so samurai movies, which all that kind of stuff does show through a lot in this movie. Yeah, about the, now uh, that you say it, I see, especially the samurai thing, it's like, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah. Western, yeah, but like, uh, a samurai. He's too. talked at That's length about how, like, with the, with the uh, Joseph Campbell thing and the monomyth hero's journey kind of thing, he says that he, when he was touring behind the first Mad Max wherever he went around the world, because it was a huge hit internationally, just not in the United States. Mm-hmm. The first one, not this one. He mm-hmm. said people would say, like, oh, Max is, he'd go to Japan, and people would say, oh, Max is like a, a wandering samurai. And he'd go to Scandinavia, and people would like, oh, Max is like a, a lone Viking. And he'd go to the United <laughs> States, and people would say, oh, Max is like a, a gunslinger, like Clint Eastwood guy. And he's like, it's weird that, like, all these different cultures have exactly the same type of hero. Right. And you could say that really Max is, Max Rakitansky is that character for Australian mythology, uh, at least in the post-colonial period. He's wow. like, you know, because they, you know, he's probably the key figure that come off of that continent. Um, but anyway, he's an interesting cat. Um, also, in in reference to uh, uh, Fury Road, another big thing that some people talk about is how there wasn't really a script so much as a series of storyboards. Mm-hmm. He was doing that on, on, on Road Warrior as well, actually. Really? He, um, in the, I was listening to the director's commentary, and he was talking about how, like, the day of shooting, and this would give me... I know how you operate in terms of like shooting schedules and things like that. This would give me stress nightmares. And I, he would wake up on the morning of shoot day on location, 800 miles out in the middle of bass awkward nowhere. And he, he scribble out a sketch on like a napkin of like what he wanted to shoot that day. And he'd bring it out to the cinematographer and be like, Hey, you think we can do this? And he'd say, I have no idea what you just wrote on this napkin. And he'd say, all right, well, whatever. And he throws it away. Cause he cause nobody can interpret these hieroglyphics that he scribbles out. And everybody on the commentary had a good laugh about this, but you could tell 35 years ago it was probably a way different story. Yeah, they needed some time to heal. Number one, he's an ER, ER doctor. Correct. I can only imagine how terrible those scribbles he's... were. They weren't even freaking words. Exactly. It's just like, ah, doodle doodle. And they're like, what? Yeah. Number two, no wonder all the lines were mumbled. They're like trying to make it up. His... That's ridiculous. I was going to say, when you brought up the ER doctor thing, I, was th- I just put it together just now. I was like, oh yeah, his threshold for stress is like, Far higher than the average human, so it's yeah. like, oh, I'm going to shoot a movie today. Uh, what are we going to shoot? Well, give me five minutes. Give me five minutes and a sheet of paper. you know, got to know the cinematographer went home every night, and they're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit. I'm going to quit. This guy. I, can't, yeah. I, can't, I can't handle the stress. <laughs> I can't do it. And then the yeah. next day, they're like, well, all right. I guess yeah, I'll make it exactly. the next um, the other, the other guy, and before we get to Mel Gibson, we'll talk very briefly about him, I guess, but, um, Max Aspen, not a household name, he was a stunt coordinator for this movie, um, and weirdly, this is, like, the only notable film that he has ever done before or since, according to his IMDb list. He's gotten work, uh-huh. but he's never done anything as big, this is for sh- far and away his most high-profile project that he's worked on. And it was just this one film, it wasn't yep. all three or four? Yep, oh, yep, okay. yep. Um, but he did a hell of a job. I mean, like, every stunt just punches really hard in this movie, I feel yes, like. Yes, yeah. We will talk about the shooting style a little mm-hmm. bit. I wondered, kind of, um, if some of the ways they shot it were to cover up maybe some issues with stunt mm. coordination, but we can talk about that sure. now or later. Okay. Um, well, I mean, might as well talk about it now, because, like, I, my short answer is I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, well... Oh, just for me, a lot of the shots, they would do shot reverse shots. Yeah. So, you know, you shoot one thing mm-hmm. and then you shoot basically over the 180 line. So you see both sides of something. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when you do that, you would include like a shoulder or something to give you kind of some context. Yeah. They didn't do that a lot of times. When they would shoot, like, it, I, it took me a while to realize like 
what it was that was throwing me off. But that was it. Like they would shoot, they would have a shot and then you'd go to the reverse shot and it would, you wouldn't have any context between the two. So you were assuming the relationship, but we never actually had something that showed the relationship. And I kind of wonder, because obviously you have to coordinate, like if you're shooting, if you're shooting like that, if you're going to shoot something, you set up one camera, you shoot it all from this one angle, you know, looking, there was one with the dog and I don't know why, you know, it, if the dog, okay, this was actually a good example. There was a couple times with the dog reacting to something. Yes. So you'd have like a gyro captain or something do something and then you'd cut to the dog and the dog's like growling and barking, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't see any part of gyro captain in the, they wouldn't interact. So I'm, it might've just been the dog shots, but it did happen a lot. I am glad you brought up that specific example because I have a great story about oh, that. Oh, okay. Um, which we can, we can skip to because we talked about Mel Gibson. Everybody knows who he is. The only interesting thing about him in this movie is, like, I find it fascinating how young he was in the Mad Max movies. Like, mm-hmm. he made the first one when he was, like, 22, and then wow. this one, he was, like, 24 years old. Wow, okay. And it's amazing, because, like, first of all, he doesn't look that young. No, he definitely He looks like he's lived a hard 24 yeah. years. Yeah, well, um, it's the post-apocalypse. Yeah, it's perfect. He's got that one shoot of gray hair on yes. his left temple. Oh, my gosh. Great Which touch. Which I think the little kid had, too. It's great. I love it. And that. I was like, are they going to do something with him? <laughs> That's your kid. He survived. Yeah, but, right? Um, yeah, that tumbling baby shoe that you saw in the first movie was not, a, or in the recap yeah. at the beginning. That had, Yeah, he was fine. Yeah, um, made it. But yeah, super young when we made this movie. So yeah, let's skip down to the real star of this movie, The Dog, who is probably my favorite movie dog mm-hmm. of all time. Oh, um, yeah. And uh, I'm working my way toward that story. But I've got, I've got material about The Dog here because I know that's what our listeners are in for. Obviously. All about it. Okay, first of all, I love this dog partly because of the way he acts just on screen. Like, yawning during the car chase was one of my favorite moments of the movie. He's the best. Um, He was a very expressive dog. He was. Um, uh, George Miller originally thought that the dog, I'm pulling this basically off of the Mad Max wiki, I'm truncating it. Uh, Miller originally thought that the dog would be a three legged canine called Trike, but they couldn't find a three legged dog that worked. Um, That the, the filmmakers auditioned over 100 dogs. Uh, All couldn't, three legs? Could not, well, no, over total. Oh, like, okay. Over 100 dogs couldn't find the right one until they visited the dog pound at Yaguna. Again, gotta love Australia. Yeah. Um, they found a two-year-old Australian yeah. cattle dog, a.k.a. Blue Healer, um, scheduled to be put down. So he was on <gasps> death row. The dog fetched a rock that Miller had thrown, brought it back to his feet. It was enough for the director to make the decision of casting the dog. This dog plays fetch? Unbelievable. Exactly, This is the star we've been looking for. This is our dog. Um, He was scared of the engine noise on set, and so they stuffed cotton in his ears, and it worked. He was like, yeah, he was fine. Um, So sweet. And this is the part that I was getting to here. Uh The dog was very fond of actor Bruce Spence, who played the gyro captain, Uh caused minor issues with the dog being virtually unable to bark at and be aggressive toward the actor. Miller solved this problem by clever editing techniques that gave the appearance of hostility between the two. Okay, interesting. So So maybe it was specifically the dog shots. In that case, I noticed it a lot of times, but we do cut to the dog a lot. So maybe I just didn't put it together that that's what was happening. Sure. Oh, Um, that's really sweet. I hope... Did he take him home at the end? After after filming, everyone wanted to adopt the dog because he was so affectionate. Took him back to the pound and put him down. 
After a big argument, <gasps> it was finally decided that the dog was going to be adopted by stunt coordinator, coordinator Max Aspen and his wife, Dale, who was the animal handler, trainer, and stunt performer. Amazing. Uh, so maybe that's why he didn't do work. He was like, I got a dog out of yeah, it. This exactly. is really all I needed. Uh, the dog continued doing what he did best, rounding up animals around the farm and also eating chickens. Eating chickens. He's, no, that's like, not what you're supposed to do. This dog, I feel like, is just so true to his character. It's uh, uh it, it's ridiculous how much I love this dog in this movie. Yes. Um, but anyway, that was uh, just some just some fun facts about the pupper. That's amazing. Uh, it's the movie that makes me really want to get an Australian cattle dog. Oh my gosh, he's beautiful. He's it's, great. Yeah, and uh, just seems like such a good companion. Which for sure. Tragic. But. He meets a he meets an untimely demise for sure. It's yeah. pretty bad. Although Which anytime there's a dog in a movie, you're like, that's eh, fifty fifty. Like yeah, he may not make it out alive. Um, doesn't get a name. He doesn't he gets no name. Oh he's yeah, just, he calls him just, dog. Just calls him dog. Yeah. Um, he would have had a name if he had. I, apparently, George Miller came up with a great name for a three legged dog, but couldn't come up with a name for a four legged dog. Like that's trike. That's a good name, but well, something that has dog. four wheels. What? <laughs> we can't call him car. It'll just get. <laughs> Um, but yeah, moving along, um, let's see, uh, as far as the Mad Max film franchise is concerned, yeah, this is the second of the four movies, um, first one was a huge international hit, like I said, I love the first one probably more than the rest, just because I, it's, it's so visceral, it's like fast, cheap, and dirty stunts in the first one that are still some of my favorite, which, luckily, they got recapped in the opening, uh, prologue, in yeah. the black and white footage, it goes from Ed Wood-style stock footage of the, uh, two great warrior tribes, yeah. Up to the um, the greatest hits, if you will, of the first film, and I love that the uh, yes. car smashing through the uh, uh, the camper is oh, a personal yeah. favorite, and the other one with the motorcycle hitting the dude in the head is always one that like oh god, that's right. It's 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 hot. It's, it's every time I see that, I just say in my head bonk because <laughs> anyway. Um. Okay. Recap real quick. Sure. What happened? So there's a gas shortage. Yes. In the entire world. Correct. It's not just Australia. We just right. happen to be in Australia. Okay. It's implied that it's the whole world, probably. Yes. And there's some, like, I don't know, like, tribal language of, like, in mm-hmm. the cities of steel and the machine stuff, whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, okay, so gas shortage. Why is the world so car-focused if there's a gas shortage? Um, that's a good question. Rule of cool, possibly? I'm not okay. really sure. Uh, it's... It's definitely cool. It's like, you know, no complaints. But I just, I don't understand. I don't remember Mm -hmm. from the first one kind of the logic of like, because that's one thing I actually, I think they do really well is the specificity of the world. A lot of post-apocalyptic genre stuff, I think is just kind of like, well, there was an apocalypse. Yes. Some sort of Nuclear war or whatever. Yeah, there was a war, quote unquote, and now this is where we are. Yeah. This is like, it's very specific about like, it's a gas shortage. Machine stop working, blah, blah, blah. I do think it's kind of weird that everything is so machine-based in a world where there's no gas. So the first one doesn't really address that at all. And in fact, I can definitely imagine, because it's been a while since I've watched the first one uh, Mm -hmm. myself, but I've seen it several times. I want to say that, like, there's a sort of a prologue talking about how, like, the resources are starting to, you know, resource shortages leading to tensions and things like that. But if it wasn't for that prologue, you could watch that whole movie as an American in 1979-1980 and think, oh my god, is this just what Australia is like? Life is cheap and there are marauding gangs of probably gay punk bikers roaming around. And the cops all wear black leather and drive these crazy hot rods? Oh my god. Anyway, so you could definitely think that because there's very little in the first movie that makes it obviously an apocalypse movie. Mm -hmm. Because it's very much like, this is the world 
as the apocalypse is starting to happen, mm-hmm. but nobody fully realizes what that means yet, except for the fact that there are, like, encroaching barbarians coming from, like, the desolate wastelands into civilization. You know, those are the kind of things that's, like... And that's what I find so fascinating about the first one is because it's basically just a cop movie, mm. like, cop revenge movie, but at this very bizarre period at, like, the cusp of, like, civilization collapsing. Right. You could kind of watch the whole first Mad Max movie, at least in my memory, which, again, mm-hmm. kind of foggy, um, and not realize it was part of the Mad Max franchise until, like, maybe the end. Yeah. Like, it goes on, yeah, it's kind of just a Mel Gibson movie until the end where you're like, oh, okay, this yeah. is starting something. For but, sure, for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, just the 80s aesthetic and the, you know, way it is, like you mm-hmm. said, it could just be Australia. Like, this yeah. could just be... Life is know. cheap. And I, did, and I did love that scene at the beginning of Road Warrior uh, when he first comes across, like, the, the crashed big rig that he eventually goes back for, which, mm-hmm. great foreshadowing. Yeah. Uh, che- Chekhov's Mack truck. Um, <laughs> uh, because there's, like, a shot of a... There, where you see, like, all the debris, and there's, like, a dead guy in one place, and there's, like, a dead kangaroo on the on the road right next to it, which oh, is yeah. not front and center, but it's, like, it's no... I was, like, yeah, Australia. This could be Australia Ooh. 2018. <laughs> We're in Australia. Um, uh, yeah. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I mean, coming in the middle of this, this franchise is one of my favorite franchises. I think it's, like, consistently good, even though I don't love Thunderdome. It's mm. been a while since I watched it. It might be worth a second look, but... One of a lot of kind of long running franchises that have continued to be successful today with new installments, including like Star Wars, Star Trek, James Bond, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it stands up there with them, even though it doesn't have nearly as many installments as most of those. Right. And do you know if they're planning to continue it? I believe so. George Miller is like 70, so I, I'm not saying he's running out of time, but I'm saying he should hit the gas if he wants to. Ooh, um, a car pun. Indeed. Speak in terms he'll understand. Right. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's, uh, he has talked about it. I think he, I get the sense that the next one is going to be the last one. Um, Mm. not only because of George Miller getting on in years, but just because it seems like he's ready to kind of bring the whole story to a conclusion, even though Mm. none of the movies necessarily have anything to do with each other. There's very little connective tissue. Yeah. Any of them could really be like a solid end to the franchise. Mm -hmm. They're all kind of standalone movies that feature possibly the same character mm-hmm. you know it's well, not necessarily is, is tom hardy supposed to be the same Matt? so that's it's kind of a storytelling it's a deliberately ambiguous thing mm-hmm. um so like you've heard of like the good the bad and the ugly that's part of sergio leone's mm-hmm. man with no name trilogy with clint eastwood uh-huh. where clint eastwood plays possibly the same character same appearance same demeanor not explicitly the same guy in each movie. Mm-hmm. This is the same kind of a thing with the Mad Max movies, where it's, like, probably the same guy, but he could just be, like, that mythic gunslinger, loner, drifter character. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I think either way it works out. I choose to believe that it's all the same storyline, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's up for interpretation. Um, and I guess realizing now how young... Uh, Mel Gibson actually was the yeah. Tom Hardy thing could work like yeah, yeah maybe maybe it's just I think Tom Hardy is older now than Mel Gibson was even when he made Thunderdome so you know makes it's, sense it stands add, to reason it adds up yeah um, so let's move on now a little bit to the style of just Road Warrior here and this movie gets a lot of credit deservedly so I think for really nailing down what would become known and recognized today as the post-apocalyptic aesthetic with like mm-hmm. the Specifically with costumes and vehicles. And I want to get your thoughts on this. Um, yeah, I think the aesthetic is so specific. Mm-hmm. That's part of the like entertainment value of the whole series. It's just 
how, like we said, the, you know, it, the gas shortage, the cars, everything is, it's comes from a very like logical place. They have thought through why things would be the way they are. Although again, the gas shortage. Thing sure. But, um, yeah, it, I think it's very eighties post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. and I was actually, there was a Star Wars marathon on um, the other weekend, and so it was just kind of on the background uh-huh. as I was doing some things. And I noticed this in this one, too, but there's a lot of the kind of 80s... Because it does have a kind of similar Star Wars aesthetic, at least yeah, the, like, Luke bit. Skywalker mm-hmm. early, you know... I totally forget the name of the planet. Uh, Tatooine. Okay, that was going to be my guess, but then I was like, <laughs> I'm going to fuck it up and someone's going to... We're going to get, get angry, angry emails. Yeah. yeah. Um... You're not a real nerd. Yeah. You're a girl. Nice try. Watch your Star Wars. Um, there's always like one or two costumes that are just out of place. <laughs> yeah. His aunt in Star Wars. Yes. She looks like she's just wearing an outfit. Like yeah. she's just wearing like a jacket. Like she got there and, late and didn't get to wardrobe. Yeah. And they're just like, well, that's fine. Like what, yeah. what options yeah. did you bring us? Here, have some blue milk. Everyone else is going to be in like, you know, hooves and yeah. like stabs. Yeah. And you just get this like quilted jacket. But they're the girl, the younger. Are you girl. gonna say top ponytail girl? Yes. Yes. Like what the heck? That was straight out of like an eighties workout video. The only thing that would clue you into the fact that she had scavenged clothes was that her like neckline was frayed a little bit, and that was and not even like noticeably. No, but it so. looked like that like kind of off the shoulder collar cut yeah. of the eighties. Yeah. Like no, no, that woman showed up late, and they <laughs> and it was kind of funny because they. I mean, it seemed like she was pretty petite. And she was often near Gyro Captain, who's pretty tall, so maybe this is just the way they had to shoot mm-hmm. it. But, like, you only saw her from, like, a little below the shoulders up. So I was like, yeah. maybe they just actually couldn't costume her. <laughs> they ran out of money at the last minute. Which, but, by the way, I mean, that goes into the, into the style thing a little bit. But I love the idea of, like, it's so on the nose in some ways, like, so overboard that it's impossible to think that that was just laziness. That they Like, all the good guys are in white. All the bad guys are yeah. in black, except for Max, because he's a cool good guy, and he yeah. wears black. and he gets to wear black. Yeah, some of the costumes were just d- nonsensical. The, some of them looked like they were just, like, on a hockey team, the <laughs> yeah. good guys. Where, exactly, did these, these Australian marauders get all of these American football shoulder pads? Yeah, for real. Like, they were, like, a laser tag team or something. Was this, like, NFL's Australian tour when the apocalypse yeah. hit, and they were just like, oh, shit, we got... Uh, we got we got the Eagles and the Raiders in town. Let's go and just steal shit from their locker room. Maybe they were rugby pads. I don't know. Um, Please, blasphemy. There's no such thing. Get out of here. Uh, yeah, that was fun. And then the outfits for the bad guys. Are oh, yes. So, I mean, in a world where there's so much critique about female, like, female action characters' outfits yes. just being completely unrealistic, you would never wear that into battle. You have no mm-hmm. coverage. This was, like, all the women were pretty well covered. Yeah. The the bad dudes were, like, in assless chaps yes. and, like, just leather briefs Which, and by the way, and stuff. just me being nitpicky because it was one of those redundancies, like, when people say ATM machine. Mm-hmm. It's like, it doesn't really matter that people say that. It's just, like, annoying. Assless chaps. Chaps are designed to not cover your ass. Like Chaps that's are designed to be worn with pants that will cover your ass. When someone that's, says yes. assless chaps, they mean chaps pantsless, with no pants. Pantsless chaps. Pantsless chaps. But anyway, uh, but yes, to, to your point, um, yeah, the the punk aesthetic is really strong mm. in this development because everybody's got mohawks. Yeah. There's, like, a lot of things are dovetailing nicely with the design of some of these, like, especially, like, Lord Humongous's 
uh, gang, if you mm-hmm. will. Like, the punk aesthetic was very nascent in the real world. They shot this in 1981. That was mm-hmm. very early on in, like, punk kind of becoming a mainstream thing that people knew about. But also, as you mentioned, yes, the campiness. Because a lot of this stuff is straight up leather daddy stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's, like, gay panic punk panic, biker panic, all rolled into one giant triple threat to freak out squares, you know what I mean? Okay, okay. I was wondering why they coded the bad guys so homoerotically. Yeah. And I mean, like, clearly, the one, not Humongous, but the... Wes, the guy with the... Wes. uh, The guy who looks like older Rufio. Yeah. With the red and black mohawk. Um, Yeah, who is kind of the main antagonist. Humongous is, like, you know, the boss, but... Mm -hmm. This guy Wiz, is the one that's Wiz really... Is, he's the dragon, if we're going to go with the motto Yeah, there. there you go. But he is basically explicitly gay. Everyone mm-hmm. else is just... Everyone else in the gang, at least, is just coded very... Very... Clearly. Yeah. So, I, and I didn't know what to make of that. But gay panic actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I definitely think that was a matter of just, like... Like I say, just George Miller basically being like, how are we going to freak out? What, how are we going to get the maximum freak out from, like, real squares in the audience? Because, again... Great. 1981. Australia is very much like America and a lot of, like, in its cultural, like, mm. mores, more or less, I feel like. And so 1981 was not exactly the pinnacle. You know, we talked about the 50s not being the pinnacle of, of uh, uh, accepting of different yeah. uh, social lifestyles and things like that when we talked about Ed Wood. 81, still not exactly at the peak, you know what I mean? Yeah, no. And, uh, you know, especially if you're, you know, making an action movie, it's like, oh dear, gay bikers, oh no. Yeah. Um... So I, I, I got to think that that was just him being cheeky and trying to, you know, freak people out the best that he could. Like, basically taking advantage of other people's, like, um, homophobia mm-hmm. and, like, using that as a weapon <laughs> as a weapon against them. Interesting. Yeah, um, I, I could definitely see that. I mean, he, he makes all of his choices so specifically mm-hmm. that, yeah, it makes a lot yeah. of sense. Um, but, yeah. Um, as far as uh, uh, there's some of the other, like, we talked about it being, like, kind of Western-coded in a lot of ways, like... Definitely like a kind of a cowboys and Indians sort of a, a, a like you know coding you know yeah. that's a, as a trope yeah um, we've got that civilization versus kind of the wild yeah but it's all but it's all white people so it's like mm. all, you know humongous is you know there's a lot of like the bows and arrows and the mohawks and things like that kind of coded in like the cowboys and Indians kind of motif but this is all white people so mm-hmm. it's like you do have that like. Uh, in this case, literal savages, like, they're unambiguously savage people, mm-hmm. um, attacking the poor, innocent, uh, settlers, squatters, whatever you want to call them, but it's not, but without, like, basically stripping away, like, the racial undertones that were in, like, a lot of the Westerns that did that, mm-hmm. um, so it kind of just reduces it down to its basics, just straight up good versus evil kind of a thing, and very unambiguously so. Right. Um, but I was wondering if you had any kind of, any kind of thoughts about that. Oh, I think it's interesting. I didn't think about the cowboys and Indians, but I, I yeah, I think the, there's that natural element of, you know, man versus nature in some mm-hmm. ways, because these are basically animals and right. versus these civilized people who are just trying to live. And then mm-hmm. they're trying to get to kind of funny, but it was like a resort town. They're trying to get. Yeah, so they're they trying had to get to like the a beach. pamphlet. Trying to get like, to the beach. Yeah. Who was a, who would if you had to live anywhere during the apocalypse, the beach is probably your best bet. Yeah, and they have some kind of uh, pamphlet for it that's like, look, like this is where we're going, mm-hmm. and it's clearly from like before the apocalypse. Yeah. And you would advertise a sure. town, but at a thousand miles. Uh, they were 800 miles west of Sydney in this desert. That did not sound. They kept being like, "Come on, we're gonna go. It's only a thousand miles," and I was like, "That sounds." Awful, even yep. when you can get gas whenever you need to. Yep. 
You don't have gas. That's the whole point of this world. Why are you going on a thousand mile journey to some beach town that doesn't even exist so anymore? So they've got all the gas they need. That's the thing. They got a whole bunch of it. They did, but then they blew up the refinery. Now they, they have a limited number. Correct. Yes, you're right. Number amount. They have a limited number of gas. How many gases? How do many they gasolines? Have? Anyway, not that many. Not <laughs> enough for a thousand miles. Um. Yeah. Precisely. So, um, which we'll get to that very shortly as well, but um. You brought up an interesting point about, like, having the pamphlet, and it's like, this is recently enough after the shit has hit the fan that people still very vividly remember uh, the before times, you know yeah. what I mean? Which I thought was interesting, because you don't really get that in Fury Road. Fury Road makes it seem like it's been, like, generations yeah. since the civilization collapsed. And a lot of post-apocalyptic, I think it's kind of like, this is the world that everyone knows, like, mm -hmm. isn't it weird how different it is? But it is cool when you have that, like, oh, this is in living memory, like, these... Yep. The older people, even some of the middle-aged people of this group, remember what it was like before and remember, yeah. you know, how the world used to work. Mm -hmm. And that's always interesting. Definitely. Um, but yeah, moving right along here. Um, as far as structurally, you know, we did, we've been touching on it throughout about how this is kind of classic monomyth, which, you know, going back to, you know, Beowulf or the Epic of Gilgamesh. If you're not familiar with Joseph Campbell, and this is the kind of thing that you might be interested in, I mean, it's a good... Um, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever read Hero of a Thousand Faces, or are you familiar with this work? I'm familiar, but I haven't actually read it. So as, you know, knowing that you studied anthropology, I think you would probably find this pretty fascinating, because again, this goes back to like, you know, ancient Sumerian epics, you know, mm -hmm. the earliest civilizations that we have, uh, you know, stories connected to, uh, follow to one degree or another, this formula, basically, that is cross-cultural, and so I find that kind of, fat that kind of thing fascinating mm -hmm. um and so do people like george lucas and francis ford coppola and george miller right um and it's and it's funny like if, even there's a youtube video that i can't remember who, who made it but basically it was talking about how happy gilmore is a perfect monomyth and oh, it's actually what? very true because it's like you've got the herald you've got the mentor you've got refusing the call you've got the you've got all of these yeah. stages and anyway it's it's great it's it's good stuff but this movie definitely, like The Road Warrior, is one of the prime examples that hits basically every single beat of the monomyth. Mm -hmm. I was yeah. wondering if you, if you picked up on that while you were watching, if there was something that you knew about ahead of time, anything like that. No, I think it is, like, it makes a lot of sense. I think this is the very classic, like, when you talk about the monomyth, this is basically exactly what it is, where it's like, one man, he's a loner, he wants to just continue as he is, but someone needs something from him. Mm -hmm. I think this is, like textbook yes. to me so yeah i mean yeah it was definitely very clear and i think it's most often coded into or like spoken about in terms of action movies sure like that is i don't know what's what that is there now how much we've talked about it i'm like i should go back and read this because <laughs> there's a lot to learn but I, sure. it's true there's only so many stories for whatever reason that we can tell and this is kind of the original mm -hmm. We can take variations like Under the Tuscan Sun, etc. <laughs> it's the it's the story structure that people seem most likely to identify with, like right. cross, like that you can transpose into virtually any scenario, mm -hmm. make the elements work together, and people will connect with it. You know, yeah, and it's easy to follow. You kind of know where it's going, so when it turns in certain ways, <clears throat> you know how you should feel. Like yeah. we're not confused by Max's coming back to the to the colony mm -hmm. or choosing to help them and stuff like. This is inevitably what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, it's, it, and it makes me kind of wonder, like, you know, everybody, we, 
as creative types, we tend to think of things as being sort of fluid in creative mm -hmm. works and in narratives and things like that. But it kind of makes me wonder if like all these different cultures developed the same structure for stories. If maybe this is like the science, this is like the closest thing to like chemistry and like act like hard science in you know storytelling and in creative pursuits. If like this is like one of those things that is just almost like our brains are hardwired to relate to something a story structured this way. If this mm -hmm. is like the most efficient way to get, um, you know, emotional reactions out of people. I don't know, but yeah. it kind of makes you wonder that way. It would be interesting to, I mean, obviously, limited knowledge because I haven't actually read the source material, but mm -hmm. how much of just inventing this framework, you, you know, the framework now makes the stories fit. Like, is that how, when these stories were written or the cultures that wrote them, is that how they would also describe these works? Or is it that we found a framework and we can find ways to make these other stories fit it. I'm not sure. I think that what Campbell's argument was that these are the elements that you see appearing in this order, more or less, in stories that appeared at all points throughout history mm -hmm. and in virtually every known culture that we have works to reference. So I, little column A, little column B, hard to say <laughs> for sure, um, because most certainly, you know, you'll find things that don't fit, but there are things that also do fit. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems like un almost uncanny that it would be that perfect um and some skip a steppers here and there stuff like that but i still find it very very interesting in terms of just a you know the, the history of storytelling yeah uh, sure. and the science of storytelling um but all that having been said it's interesting that this is like you know this is a these are the mad max movies mm -hmm. but he this is a kind of a prime example of where max is really not the main character of this story he's our focal point He's kind of stumbling into Papagallo's story at the uh, the leader of the uh, uh, gasoline tribe. Oh, you um, think so? I think so. It's like we follow Max for like the first twenty minutes or so of the movie mm -hmm. before he comes across the refinery. But then once he gets there, and he's he's kind of we are kind of like tagging along with him as he is observing this other story that's taking place, where it's got a family or whatever. I don't even really know how these people are related of people who are trying to figure out how they're going to escape. Mm -hmm. And the missing piece shows up. But really it's not his story as much as this is these people's journey and he is just the missing link to it, I guess. I guess in the way that, like, he doesn't actually really change in the... Like, he starts alone and then he ends the movie alone mm -hmm. as well. Like, he's had this experience, but he doesn't... He doesn't make any significant changes to himself. Right. Because he, he goes about his way at the end. But possibly, I mean, if we're looking at it like that, and I'm not sure if that's how you're framing it, but it could also be Gyro Captain's story. Because yeah, at the true. end, he you know he goes from being a loner in the desert, sicking snakes on people <laughs> to steal their gas, and then becomes the leader of this tribe. Uh -huh. Like, finds his girl, becomes the leader of this tribe, whatever, basically it. But... It also, becomes a hero. It's yeah. also the feral kid. The feral kid literally becomes the leader of the tribe by the chronological end of the story. Right, because he's, he's the opening and closing story. VO, too. So, yeah. like, if anyone's going to be... If anyone's literally telling the story, mm -hmm. it is him. Yeah, so, exactly. I guess by that... Oh, my God, there's birds attacking my window, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it could be a lot of people's stories. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I, I always find it interesting that this is just, like, Max kind of trying to survive, and he stumbles across... 
And, and again, unlike Fury Road, um, which I think is the closest, like, this movie comes the closest to Fury Road mm. of the other three Mad Max movies. Um, you know, that one, like, Act 1 is over in, like, five minutes. He's, like, he's standing on the cliff, gets chased by those dudes, captured, boom, end mm-hmm. of Act 1, basically. On act, like, that's that's everything we need to know about this character. Yeah. Whereas this one really takes its time getting into the narrative. Like, sure, yeah. you follow Max for, like, 20, 30 minutes as he's just driving around, chasing some dudes, getting chased by some dudes, finds the gyro captain, and then... Wham! Then now, now we find the gasoline, and now things are really starting to roll. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's like he's taking his time finding the story, more or less. Yeah, I think it's interesting too. I think all part of this, Max doesn't speak for the first like it takes a really long time for him to speak, and I was wondering because in Fury Road, which was my most vivid memory of the Mad Max franchise, he like a good portion of the movie he has something covering his face so he can't speak Mm -hmm. so there's something interesting about like yeah this there's something there with like the storytelling the kind of finding the story and then just not actually being able to to speak to direct the story in the most obvious way which is through dialogue I think that's interesting and I'm not totally sure what's there but Mm -hmm. there's well I, I think that George Miller is just really interested in telling stories visually. You know, mm-hmm. obviously, if he's writing his whole movies by scribbling them out on cocktail napkins on the day of shooting, he's not spending a whole lot of time on writing dialogue, for <laughs> one thing. Um, but, like, for example, one shot in particular that comes to mind is when Max first finds the gyro. Mm-hmm. There's a great overhead crane shot where you see Max getting out of his car, and you see the gyro, and you see footsteps leading away from the gyro. Mm-hmm. Which you can barely see. It's like, I only noticed that this is like my 15th time watching oh, this movie. Uh-huh. Where he very cautiously gets out of his car and he's looking around and there's like the car, the gyro, Max, and the footsteps. And so he's like surveying the situation like, too easy, gotta be a trap. Uh-huh. And it's like that, but he conveys that, even if you didn't see the footsteps, like when you saw that scene, is that what you got away from it? Kind of like the way he gets out of his car and he's just like, alright, let's see what's going on here. Yeah, and clearly like the way the whole scene from there is set up, like he... Says nothing, but obviously has been in the situation before and knows how to handle it and how not to handle it. So, you know, reaching under, he's got the knife right next to his gas tank. That's not necessarily kind of his acting, but it's the way the scene is set. Yes. We understand, like, okay, this is something he was prepared for. And then the gyro captain is also kind of prepared Mm -hmm. for it. And yeah, with very little dialogue, we see exactly what the situation is and how it's not really that unusual. Neither of them right. are prepared for it. And it's like, they're both kind of like taking it in stride as things mm-hmm. go up until that beautiful scene of uh, Max getting the upper hand and you've got the gyro captain in the car with the dog holding the bone that's connected to the shotgun Ooh, trigger. Yeah. That was, and then the rabbit jumps by. Yeah. That was hilarious. I love that. And he just that. like, look, the dog like, He's, cuts his eyes, but doesn't move his yeah. head. Yeah. Oh. Which makes me like, which really makes me smile knowing that the dog loved Bruce Spence so much because yeah. it's like, he probably, like, it took a, probably a lot to get him to look away from Bruce Spence. Like, what? What? Rabbit? Okay. Yeah. Um, that was excellent. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, I didn't want to get too much into the idea of, like, jumping into, like, somebody else's story. Because you're right. I mean, we, Max is unmistakably our central character. It just seems like the story was already in progress before he arrived. And so it was like, now that he's here, things can... He was the catalyst for changing the story. Yeah. Um, but he's not really an agent too much. I mean, he chooses to come back. Right. Which we said was kind of inevitable, but 
Yeah, he's not. He's not really. He didn't really have a choice though, even then, because like he, they crashed his, they you know, he blew up his car mm-hmm. and they killed his dog, and he's got literally nothing else to do. Like, so he's like, he's busted. Like, he'll close. Like, he, he probably thinks that if he doesn't get to that civilization, that not civilization, that settlement, he's gonna die of exposure because he can't run. He doesn't have a car. He's got nothing. Like, really, his only option for survival is to help these people. True. Yeah. I mean, it's it's he is doesn't have a ton of agency and it's all kind of in service of, of just living. He's a survivor. That, this yeah. thing is like Fury Road gave that mission statement basically. Like his whole MO is just to survive mm-hmm. by any means necessary. So, um, but yeah. So as we kind of approach the end here, um, I was curious, is he had any favorite scenes or moments in this film? I love characters like Gyro Captain and like, just the kind of Dick Van Dyke, like, <laughs> I mean, he same body type, but that just very physical and funny and goofy character in a movie like this that could be, like, very kind of heavy and driving. Yeah. Pun intended. But, <laughs> um, so the, the one part where, like, the dog's trying to eat the snakes, and he's like, those are my snakes, I trained them, I'm gonna eat them. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of kind of post-apocalyptic gags, yeah. if you will, that are pretty great. His purple scarf was just a very, like... <laughs> Very silly touch. <laughs> the trench coat over the long johns, basically. Yeah. It was like that one V long john. That whole thing. outfit was perfect because it's like he's already a tall and lanky guy, you can yeah. tell, but it just like emphasized it like tenfold. They dressed him to like make that size guy. Uh-huh. But um And his disgusting yeah. teeth. Like those are the grossest teeth I think I've ever seen oh, in the movie. Yeah, they were awful. So whenever he was getting like whenever he was flirting with like top ponytail girl, I was yeah. like, oh, gross, and he was like gross, very gross, gross, smiley gross. and you're like Bleh. super gross. <laughs> um Anything else that was like stuck out? Did you have more? Well, yeah, while you're thinking, like the other uh, thing with Bruce Spence as the gyro captain, like when he jumps out of that hole in the ground, I was like, was he sitting there all day waiting for just somebody to show up? For real? Oh, what is this? How long did it take someone to? It could have been like years. They were in the middle of the effect. That seems like an ineffective trap to me. Yeah. Uh, Also, what's his end game? He gets them out and then what? Like, like stealer gas, I guess, but whatever. Okay, this is another thing. Not favorite scene by any means, but so we oh one of the first times we see kind of the bad group of guys, the yeah. gang, not just like the couple guys the that are chasing him. Yeah. yeah, they rape a woman. Yeah, but they're coded so homoerotically. What yeah, is- I you know. I- Okay, they're not all gay. Come on, get out of here. No, I know, I know, I know. I, I, it would have. I agree. It would have been more effective if they had. Kill like kill the woman and rape the man probably it been like it would have been much more on on point of the characterization that they were trying to build there. I feel you're right. Um, or yeah, because they like just leave the guy to die and they rape the woman. So there's definitely yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Sexual politics doesn't really yeah. make a lot of sense. But um, the kid was cute. We didn't really talk about the, the feral, feral kid, kid too much. With that boomerang. Yeah. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Oh, that was awful. He, like, cuts a guy's head open. Ugh. Cuts a guy's like a metal fingers boomerang. off and then cuts another guy's head open. Yeah, exactly. And there's one scene where, like, something bad is about... The last chase scene where Feral Kid is in Max's rig and mm-hmm. he didn't realize it and stuff. And something happens where he's, like, something gory happens. And the kid is like, ah! And then I was like, wait a minute. You, like, literally you have been slicing, slicing people's dome heads. Open yeah. Like a melon. yeah. Like, you've seen violence before. For but sure. I guess, you know, it's the good guys. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but 
Well, yeah, when he's in the truck, and first of all, uh, Max trying to find just one goddamn shotgun shell that's going to work oh. was like a great thing that like thread through the movie, and then when he spills them onto the hood, and he's goading the kid to climb out and get them for him, oh. it's like, ooh, he's showing his grayness real bad in this yeah. scene, and I was like, and I kind of love that as far as like its characterization moment. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's like gut-wrenching to see him like say to this like six-year-old kid, hey, climb out on the hood of this truck. And then he does, and what happens? He, well, they run into the the guy. Wes, yeah. Wes. And the other guy, wait, is that when uh, the bad guy does? Well, that does mean the good guy he, does? Uh, well, I was talking about more like when, when the kid reaches out for the shotgun shell, that's when uh-huh. Wes jumps over the hood, the grill. Oh, that's right, yeah, yeah, And yeah. makes that face. And that's like one of the, be- like, I know that one's coming oh, every time that yeah. I always just jump. Um, I thought that kid was going to die. I was like, oh, Max is sure. going to have to live with this on his conscience because he's going to run over that kid. But yeah. He does not. Spoiler alert. He does not. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. I mean, pretty much anything with Max's car, I love that car. Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, that does screw up the continuity uh, because Uh-oh. his car blows up in that in 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 the uh, uh, Road Warrior. Uh-huh. And he's got oh. the car in Fury Road. In Fury Road. Ooh. Mm. Maybe he found the same one somewhere. Found the same like, one. Yes. Well, they specifically said Finally. this is the last, of the, v- last of the V8 interceptors, but oh, my brand. Right. Um, How would that guy know that, though? Oh, I loved that scene, too, where he was like, they're yelling back. The and shouting. Forth. Yes, <laughs> the shouting relay. For some reason, I don't know why. They were, so it's Papagallo and then the mechanic on yep. two ends of the, whatever. Compound or whatever. Yeah. And then the mechanic is telling his guy, and the guy is shouting to Papagallo's guy, who is translating for Papagallo. But they're all speaking the same language. Like, speaking, the two yeah. could have just yelled. So. Then, and the whole, like, oh, this is going to take 24 hours. It's going to take 24 hours. Tell them they have 12. You have 12. Okay. Like, yeah. it was so, so great. I wrote this in my notes. That would be me in the post-apocalyptic scenario. I would be the designated shouter because yeah. my voice is so loud. <laughs> and I thought me and another one of our coworkers oh, would be the yes. designated shouters on this compound. That's my post-apocalyptic settlement niche. It's like, that's my yeah. skill. That's how I sell myself when I'm like saying... Okay, well, we need people that have skills. What's your skill? I was like, well, I can, I can shout really, I'm, really I'm loud. I'm a really loud talker. I can talk Not super even going to make my voice tired. I can exactly. do it all day. <laughs> exactly. I can do this all day. That is hilarious. Um, but yeah, also the uh, the character of the mechanic I thought was interesting. He doesn't have a whole lot to do, but mm-hmm. like the fact that he's obviously he's a paraplegic and oh, he gets yeah. around, he's suspended on that crane. And I was like, that's one of those great like character design things uh-huh. and set design merging together. I love that. It's beautiful. It's like one of the classic Mad Max things. Yeah. That was, it was great. I, yeah. He's so, George Miller is so specific and mm-hmm. it's great. It totally, I think that's, you were asking why it lasts so long, why yeah. this franchise has lasted. And I think that's part of it. It's just so, it gives you so much to grab onto. Yeah. And then of course, the twist, the twist ending that I don't think a lot of people sometimes, I probably forget about the fact that the truck tips over yes. after the chase, everybody's zipping in to like catch the gasoline that's fall out, but it's not gas. It's sand. It's sand. Didn't they? They pulled the old switcheroo. Yeah, because at the time I was like, what? And then, didn't they say something about that, though? Didn't they talk about the plan? Did they? I don't remember that. I was like, oh, wait, didn't they tell us this was going to happen? I don't think so. Mm, You might have just heard it. it You might have just seen that on I Love the 80s 15 years ago and remember it. I don't know. Possible. But yes, that was was great. And you're just like, I, I had a moment of like, oh my God, it was for nothing. For nothing. And then... You see the the gas in the back of the van, yep. in the, in the school, school bus. bus yeah, and you're like oh, which I didn't realize yellow school buses were universal. universal. Apparently so. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, who knows? Like I said, I 
they, I, I feel like Australia is very much like America in a lot of things, and that might just be yeah. one of them. Just got those cheese wagons going to schools every day. Yeah. Who knows? Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought that was great, and especially because like Papa Gallo was like kind of half-assed trying to talk Max out of driving the big rig. Uh-huh. Um, so he was really trying to be the sacrificial decoy. Uh-huh. Um, but also taking the warrior woman and their mechanic and all that with him, I don't know. I didn't really, that part of the plan didn't really add up to me. It's like, you got your most, arguably your most valuable community members on the decoy. True. Which Which makes sense. You gotta sell it. But it's kind of like, sell it with your second best warrior and mechanic. Yeah. Maybe. Um, but yeah, that, that twist, I I feel like it still holds up because it's like, even though you know it's coming, it's still just like, ooh, man, that's, that that sucks. That really, really sucks. And then, um. Which, by the way, uh, speaking of the truck, which is a small tidbit that some people might know, um, after this movie came out, it was an international sensation. Sales of Mack trucks skyrocketed among truckers. What? Like, oh, Mack brand Mac, trucks. yeah. Okay. With truck People who were going to buy trucks. M-A-C-K. Yeah, not gotcha. Macs, but yes. Yeah, yeah, no. But people who were already going to buy Cor- trucks yes. bought Mack trucks When I say skyrocketed, I might have exaggerated okay. slight. Uh, that might be hyperbole. I was like, what the heck are all these people doing with Mack trucks? Like, <laughs> but, um, you know what I want? Yeah. Not the V8s. Yeah, suck Mack it, truck. Peterbilt. Um, but okay. anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like those are pretty much the high points as far as I am concerned. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts uh, before we completely wrap up here? Um, no, I think it was a good movie. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, I need to see Thunderdome now. I want some Tina Turner. We can arrange that, I'm sure. Um, Magic Expectations, Thunderdome, most people's not favorite, but it's it's not bad. There's Mm -hmm. there's reasons behind it, which we can get into at another time and date. Um, but would you recommend this movie? I would, absolutely. I think if you know what you're getting into, which maybe always what I say, but <laughs> sure. just it's it's eighties, it's an eighties action movie, it's campy. The gore is campy, it's nothing like uh, Nothing too over the top. Yeah, it's all very I mean Loose there's definitely some there. moments where you're just like ah, no, but it's not not in the like eyeballs oh, bugging out, things like that. Oh yeah, yeah the the head and the yeah. <laughs> Ooh. But it is, it's good. I highly recommend it. I think, you know, it's fun. It's a fun movie. It is indeed a fun movie. Um, So yeah, without further ado, now we're going to do something a little bit different because, can you believe it, our next episode is going to be 25? 25, a quarter of a hundred. I almost said a century, but that's a quarter of a... And uh, to mark the occasion, we are going to do another guest episode. Mm -hmm. Um, Our movie for the... For that occasion is going to be a, another 1980s classic, uh, a teen classic, uh, comedy this time, uh, starring one John Cusack, one oh. of his prime examples, and that is going to be Better Off Dead, and our guest is going to be my good friend and roommate, Mike Cushing. Woo-hoo. So, um, we've got that to look forward to, and um, after that, we are actually going to take a season break. Because it's the season finale. Season finale, because we are both real busy for the next <laughs> who knows how long. But we're very excited to implement some new things, so that we'll, uh, we'll talk about that probably more next week. But in the meantime, for now, my name is Kyle. I'm Kari. And we'll see you next time. See ya. Since I send rather like that man, the warrior of the road.